back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. A warm welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the latest edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out the consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tecompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest on this edition is, well, he's, he's a man who's worn so many hats within British basketball. He's been a national team coach, a club coach, a performance director, and one half of the gene pool that's done more for Great Britain's teams than anyone outside of Brixton Top Cats. Mark Clark, welcome to the MVP cast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to uh, another environment that we get the chance to talk in. Indeed. Um, let's go big picture to start with. I mean, you've, you've been involved in so many different roles over the years and you, you've got your primary role at the minute as, as, as director of, of Barking Abbey's Basketball Academy. So from that multitude of prisms within the sport, how do you assess the state of British basketball as we sit here today? Um, I think, uh, like a number of people and a, and a number of people in your recent podcasts, I think at the moment it's a little what could be. I, and but the, the trouble is, we've been uh, at the what could be status probably since uh, getting the Olympics awarded to us it's always like this could be the opportunity for british basketball that was the first one like, this could be the, the next opportunity for british basketball we haven't managed for for a, a number of reasons um to actually step from what could be to actually making those things happen although i think there are a number of uh, really positive uh steps that could break i mean i think i still think that the bbl is is getting better and, and doing a, a really good job at trying to be better yeah, the, the the London Lions growth and going into the BCL after Leicester had been in the BCL, they're all really big. They're all positive steps. And for such a big participation sport, I, I think at the moment the sport is a participation sport. We've just got to find a way to take that next step. And um, trying to get everybody aligned to that is, is probably the biggest frustration because there's still a sport that could be something but spends a lot of time um, probably disagreeing with itself uh, as opposed to trying to agree a single way forward and trying to put all its resources uh, into that single direction. I mean, in, in, over that three, four decades almost now that you've been involved in it, what was the point that you came closest? We've all kind of had these moments of thinking, we're there, we're, this is it, this, this is going to be the next big thing. We've cracked, we've turned the potential into something Ooh. tangible. What's the closest you've ever felt that the sport came to, to cracking it? That's a huge question. Um, I would say that the that if you go way back, uh, when the Crystal Palaces and the Kingstons of this world were really, uh, and, Man and Manchester United had a basketball team, were competing in Europe and making the latter stages of competitions for the you know, for a Crystal Palace team to beat Real Madrid in a two-legged game, but beat them in the first leg, lose over two legs. That's just inconceivable now. That's just worlds apart now. Now, I know there are lots of reasons that the, the game has changed in all sorts of ways, the Bosman rule and all those types of things. But for Crystal Palace to go out and uh, beat Real Madrid in the first leg of, a, of a, the knockout stages of, the, of what is now the EuroLeague, 
And you look on the floor and you see guys of 18, 19 years old, like Joel Moore. And you see, obviously, you see Paul Stimson. You see a number of English guys on the floor playing. That was a moment where we were competing. Now, you could argue also at that time we're on BBC TV regularly. The WICB tournament is one of the biggest tournaments in the, in, in the world. So at that point, we were competitive and we were very close. And we just, for whatever reason, maybe the Bosman ruling was the thing that really tried to you know, put, a, put a break on that because that meant some of the better British players had the opportunity to go and, and play in Europe. So that was, a, that was an issue that, uh, that I think sort of uh, pretty, pretty much put the brakes on there. And I do think, even though it's, it's, it's given a really bad press, the, at the end of the Olympics, I know the men only won one game and the women didn't win a game in the Olympics, but the following year, the women beat Serbia in, in the Eurobasket. And I think that the biggest indictment of where we went wrong at that point is that we beat uh, Serbia in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Eurobasket in 2013. And in 2015, Serbia won a gold medal and we're not even competing. And it's what happened then. Um, and I think the break on that was the structural debates. People will point at the moment, the fact that UK sport withdrew its money. But I didn't really understand what else UK sport could have done, given that the criteria they have to operate under. So I think that was another key moment because we had so many good players connected to the national team. And I know there's lots of things said about that, that sort of scenario, but we took Spain to, I know that the close calls don't mean anything. You've got to win games, but the national team was at a point there where it was on the verge of breaking through. And we lost that, that again, we looked internal about who should run the sport and what was going wrong, as opposed to trying to build on the, on the platform that we'd established with the quality of the programs that were put together for, for, for 2012. So those two, I think those two points, we came closest. Um, and maybe we're at, we're at another cycle where I think the BBL now is at a really stable position. I know that COVID obviously has affected that, but there's a lot of good things that are there. But again, I still think it comes down to all those things were, 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 were stopped because there wasn't a single lack. There was a lack of single direction to the sport. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree. In that 2013, I always look back as, as probably the bigger missed opportunity than the Olympics. Because even from the men's side, you always knew that, you know, that was a great group of players. Mm. And the next year's Eurobasket wasn't going to be as strong as the Olympics because that's the one that sometimes players take off in a, in a cycle. And, you know, Spain didn't have all the players, France didn't have yeah. all the players. And if you'd kept that group together for one more year, and, if, you know, a few people like Robert Archibald retired, but, for completely from the game but if you had kept the Lowells and Popses together for one more year and probably had you know Finchy coaching for one more year and that group with the experience they gained at the Olympics they could have that could have been the group that did what the women did last year in going to another level and of course UK sports funding was still in place then it went away the following year but that was the shot yeah I I would agree because the men came up with even without uh, Lowell uh, when they went to uh, Slovenia. Germany had just beaten France. We went out and beat Germany. That team had young guys on the floor as well because uh, uh, you know, Devon was on the team. Andrew was on the team. These guys had another 10 years of national team basketball that they were, they were being handed over to. They, Kieran was on this. Obviously, Dan and Kieran and Drew were all still playing. So there was that Eurobasket experience. Miles Hassan announced himself in that tournament. So we almost had a little bit of transition and then, you know, one game away from making the knockout stage of a week of a weaker Eurobasket tournament, admittedly. Um, you know, and, and 
you like I, you, we're fortunate we get to be at those tournaments uh, in, in whatever capacity. But the chance to have conversations with you know, various players about what people think about GB, the view was we were very close in both the men's and women's tournaments that year. And in fact, to be quite honest, after we beat Serbia, there was a, it was it was a surprise that they didn't make the the final eight stage of that tournament uh, because of the way they were playing there and the quality of the individuals that they had. Again, individuals that still had eight nine years of national team basketball. Um, you know, Joe's still leading and carrying the women's team, etc. She was, you could argue, maybe in one of her prime periods there. She was healthy and really playing exceptionally well. So yeah, I think that was it. We and then we we we, uh, we literally went inward and said, well, who's running the sport? Is it is it GB? Is it is it the home countries? To be quite honest, the 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 the, the line should have been, what's the structure we need to run the sport, regardless of who has their name on the shirt as such. And that's the disappointing thing. And we point the finger at the fund the, the people who fund us, as opposed to, okay, they've got some rules in place they have to follow. What what can we do to control what we're in responsible for? I that there were moments where the whole sport I think could have got behind a single direction, and we spent our time worrying about the internal structures. That that moment we'll we'll touch on this point now. I mean that moment a few years ago when. I mean, I used the word coup at the time and, you know, the home nations effectively seized back control of, of British basketball, GB basketball, whatever you want to use as, as the brand name of that. Do you think, I mean, now we can sit back a little bit from that and how that's shaken out in the perspective of it all, but do you think that was a consequence of that infighting or do you think that was a natural progression of that tough, impossible fight to figure out how you run this sport was it an inevitable consequence um looking back in it with the benefit of hindsight i think you, you would probably have to say because of the way the sport was set up as a part of that of those agreements that were put in place it almost certainly was an inevitable consequence uh because when they when the the, the agreement was set up the home countries always had control of British basketball. That's the way the thing was set up. The three home countries, that's the way that decisions were made. There was a structure as such, but at any point in time, the three home countries were always the people there. They were the members. So if the three members wanted to make a decision, and in perhaps in many ways, the fact that it took so long, that it could have been done in, in, so, in, in at such a better, uh, a shorter space of time. It could have been done in a better way. Um, I still struggle uh, and being really close to it because at one point in that debate I was on the board of Basketball England uh, then I took the, re the responsibility for performance at GB so I had to step off that Basketball England board weren't, those, weren't we as boards responsible for working as a group to come up with the best structure for the national teams because FIBA had said the national teams were going to be British at that point and therefore, the boards, including me and, and whoever else was on those boards, obviously we singularly fouled in, in, in actually putting a, um, uh, the, the right structure in place as opposed to worrying about who ran things. Even down at an individual level, there was debates about who was the person who ran it. That's, that, that, was a, that shouldn't have been the focus of the conversations. The focus should have been what's the best structure? Give the performance director and their coaches the best opportunity they can to be successful yet we then had people developing their own programs even within that structure 
which mirrors the sport as a whole. I mean, you've had that long stretch. I mean, having obviously coached England prior to that, but then you had that stretch when GB was reactivated as a on the international stage with with the women. I mean, you had people like Chris Spice as, a, as the performance director in that era, and there was there was a you know effectively an independent company running running it on behalf of the home nations, if you will. What worked well out of that that program and the way that that structure was put together that perhaps we we didn't learn from? Because it was a very professionally run setup. No, I, I think the thing you can say, um, I think especially in the early part of that, the structure was uh, very good for a performance sport. You had a performance director who had been a successful performance director in a number of different sports. You had a, an excellent administrator uh, in Ron and uh, with Tola. And then you had some great coaches. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not hard, is it? You know, we had, a, we had the NBA coach of the year this year in our coaching staff. We had Chris Finch. He was only the assistant, though. He didn't have that much, yeah. not much yeah. influence, yeah. And I think yeah, not a lot of interest now, but like, and then you had like, uh, as, you know, the, the one thing we missed, I think the one thing that we really missed, in particular on the men's side, is that there wasn't enough, uh, there wasn't enough emphasis put on, well, what's, what's the plan for ten, the next 10 years, not necessarily just getting to the Olympics, because um, when Chris stepped down, okay, why, why didn't Nick coach, you know, for all sorts of reasons, and then we brought in Joe, and Joe's an excellent coach. Uh, an excellent person but where was the 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 planning if you look at spain if you look at france and um why not look at the best when it comes to european structures yeah sergio has been in, in the role for so many years but you look at the structure of coaching beneath him and you look at the structure of administration beneath him there are there are there is there is investment in in people and people are invested in the program and they're Spanish guys, and there's there's, there's people who, who, who that we didn't do that very well at all. Um, I think we ran the professional side of the sport, the coaching side of the sport particularly well. We didn't run the the human side of the sport very well either in a in a skills development type side or just an investment from I would say even from players, um, or even the sport. And the thing, and we got away with that because who was going to rock the boat? In, 20, in 2009 and 2010, because in 2012, everybody wanted, wanted to play in London. So no one was going to rock the boat from that perspective. But if you look back, then uh, of the people that were, um, that, uh, how, who of the people now involved in national teams actually got a touch or a feel of, the, of a national team program as a result of, of, of 2012? I think the work that uh, Warwick Khan tried to do was, was, was definitely in the right direction. But we were worried about who was running it as opposed to putting in place things like that and caring about the people who uh, could take the sport forward in the future. That's not a criticism of people like Chris Spice because his job was to prepare the, the two senior teams to compete in, in London. And the performance in 2013 shows that we had done a decent job in preparing teams to play at that level. What we hadn't done is the stuff underneath. And that's where you fall into the who runs the sport type debate because who was responsible for that? Because the British performance basketball was purely set up to run the senior teams with a little bit of under 20s. And you you led that GB women's team up from B into Division A. But then Tom Maher 
was brought a splashy Ooh. signing and everything. You know, the, it's kind of bringing in Jose Mourinho in a sense to to coach the, the team headed towards the Olympics. Was there a sense of disappointment for you? You didn't get to take that team all the way to London 2012. Well, I, I'm going to give you lots of long answers at various points. This is an easy, an easy one. Of course there was. I mean, like, um, we took the program from being a B division program and then got promotion. Um, went 6-0 and in the second year to, to win and, 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 and literally con- controlled our, the way we got up. And then um, we got into a relegation playoff that FIBA decided was going to be during the season. So we, we tried to stay in the stay in A division with with lots of players that were unavailable. I, I actually completely understand why Chris Spice did what he did. That doesn't mean to say I, I agree with him, but I completely understand and respect what he did. And you can't uh, question. Uh, at least they brought in someone like Tom Marr, you know, in terms of uh, it, it, at that point they brought in a a, a coach with a world class reputation. And, and a track record of taking different countries and doing well at Olympic Games. And uh, as you would expect, Tom Marr dealt with everything very professionally. And, and, and he, Chris, and I had a number of conversations and it was dealt with professionally. That's, I think that's, uh, but you asked me, was I disappointed I didn't get to take the team to 2012? Of course, who wouldn't be? I mean, I found, I found half, you know, we, we, we introduced half that team into national team basketball and we transitioned away from, uh, from Andrea and people like that who got us promoted and, and had some great people and we found people like Natalie Stafford to enhance the program and uh, so yeah obviously I was disappointed Was there ever a conversation about you being on Tom's staff? Never, no And is that I guess would you have taken that role? Um, well it depends what role because Assistant or Super Scout? I've always said I'm it's 150% committed to the national team. You've got to throw your own ego away at times. If I felt that uh, I could have helped the program, I'd have, done, I'd have done anything for the program. That's just the way I think people should be. This is your country. I mean, it, let's go right right back. Talked about Crystal Palace. And that's where you started out in sort of the youth system there and then moving up through the senior side and you know, cups and championships are plenty mm-hmm. of such like. We, we kind of obviously hear about Crystal Palace men because they're an historic team and historic franchise with, within British basketball history. But talk about the women's program there. How, how much did that benefit from the boon that basketball was having at that time? Well, massive. I mean, on a personal level, I was fortunate, right place, right time. But then you've got to take that opportunity to be at Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace had a completely different feel and attitude than any other basketball program I was I, I was aware of at that time it, it expected to it expected to win it expected to be the best program um, it was synonymous with the WICB where some of the best teams uh, from various parts of the world of various systems came and played so the aspiration was always to, to be playing at the highest level and that was the aspiration across the club um, the I think the best way to sum up how the women benefited from it is that we won a we won we run defeated won the WICB with a fully English team uh, and so we benefit from bringing the best English players together and putting them up against not only domestic but international competition we had two years of European Cup basketball where I mean we got to the stage before knockout and had success had sponsorship had money but invested that in in British players and uh, 
found I, arguably the best the best British player we've ever had. And we, the junior system was was there, and not only did we find you know Andrea Congreve, we found a number of other players that went on to to play at various levels and various sort of senior teams. So the structure was very much a European club structure. Find young players, bring the best players together. And then when you do add uh, international players onto your onto your roster, you add quality, not just filling your roster with them. I mean, as someone who, for a long time, as a career, worked in finance, I think what we look now with the BBL, WBBL, we talk about money a lot, particularly at the moment, obviously, with COVID. It, it seems incredible that that kind of structure in the modern era could be financed. So explain a little bit about how that worked from from a, a back-end point of view, how a club like Crystal Palace was able to do so much, be successful and be so far-reaching. Uh, yeah, it, I, 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 the, the first scenario, the first part of that scenario was that the club was really well-structured. So it had a good management structure, it had good people, uh, so the people running the organization were experienced not only from a sports perspective, but from running business perspectives. So David Last and Terry Doherty, who basically uh, ran the club, owned the club, whatever the right phrase is, um, then looked at successful situations across Europe. Um, Crystal Palace had really close links with people like Maccabi Tel Aviv, largely through the WICB, but also learned from those people. I had a really close uh, tie with Milan. We shared a sponsor. And and you take things from those organizations and you try and implement those. And then you found people like Roy Packham as a coach uh, for the junior section for the boys who was just, uh, you know, he's in the bracket with, with your Hump Flongs and your Joe Whites of this world where without those people, there wouldn't be uh, some of the young players that uh, that came through at the time. So they had a structure. That was the most important thing. So you, they could sell a picture. They could sell a, a, a structure to people. They did have a, a benefactor that underwrote, underwrote things, which is obviously helping. But they had big sponsors because the sport at that time had profile commercially. And uh, so they, the most important thing is they had a structure that supported it. And uh, that I still think is the most important thing. If you've got the right structure, and you look at people like Newcastle Eagles now and uh, and Leicester, they have good structures. So um, that, if you've got the good structure, you, you're ready to you can operate as successfully as you can. And I think that was the most important thing. But they invested in young players. Paul Stimson developed the the basketball school that did a lot of the out, same outreach programs that that people do now. But then he had a, a structure to bring the. It was almost like an ongoing massive talent ID program. And, and kids wanted to play at Crystal Palace, so the best kids came into the junior system. So there was, this, again, you outreached kids, but then you brought them into a system that worked. And those kids were practicing as often as European kids. And that, was, again, is the other thing. They had floor time. They had a great relationship with the National Sports Centre at Crystal Palace. So, um, but yeah, everything comes back to the structure. The structure was solid, and therefore you can make things work from a solid structure. I mean, Paul Simpson was the diamond hunter, and the jewel that he brought back to you on a plate was Andrea Congreve. I mean, you, speaking recently in a, on, on the Hoops Hooks podcast, and if you haven't listened to it, please do, because she, she is a phenomenal recap of a phenomenal career. But she comes in, she describes you as the best coach she ever had. You know, we'd all 
I think agree that she's the best player we've we've produced certainly from from that era. What did you see in her when she walked through the door? Well, there was two things you saw about Andrea Congreve when she walked through the door. She was six three, which is the first thing you notice, uh, obviously. Um, incredibly coordinated, but also incredibly eager to learn. So to be quite, she'd have done anything. I mean, I, I, she is the kid that would have run through the wall for you. Uh, she'd have asked how to run through the wall better. Um, but it was also the most unassuming person that needed, that just wanted to learn. So she just, eye contact was the hugest thing I noticed about. For a young kid to look at you straight in the eye and just listen and be attentive. Uh, she was always respectful, but there was an athlete there. We can talk about how great a person she is, because, but I didn't know how great a person she was when she walked through the door. I just looked and saw, uh, I saw a basketball player walk through the door. You know, it, she had, she ticks all those boxes. And if you were going to create a basketball player, how would you create them? You'd create them like Andrea Congress. How much does that help though to, I mean, how much do you enjoy it, I guess, more as a coach when you've got someone that's, you know, has got all the, the components there, the raw components. But you as a coach, it's kind of, you know, in the laboratory here, you as a coach get to influence, get to put those things together, get to make the improvements and enhancements. Is that is that one of the fun parts of being a coach in a situation like that? It is the fun part of being a coach. It doesn't it, it, With Andrea, the start point was whatever it was, the end product is going to be something phenomenal. But I get the same kick every day because of barking. You get a kid walk through the door at 16 and then they walk out the door at 18 and they're a better person, better player uh, who um, has committed to getting better. And that that's from a coaching perspective, whether it's making your team better or finding ways to get the most out of a group of people. All those things are the thing you do it for. You know, it's just that every now and again you find someone like Andrea, uh, I've been very fortunate, and also because of working with the national teams, you get to work with some, some phenomenal people. You get to work with a Joe Needham who's just got one of the, the biggest desires to be better, to win, to compete that I've ever ever witnessed. And uh, you know, you, you come across those people, and that the, the buzz you get out of seeing those people succeed is phenomenal. Do you think there's been any any kind of change in the way that you have to approach that development and role? Because I. I had a long conversation the other day with a, a national team coach from a different sport and the the one very detailed explanation he gave me was, you know, how much he's had to evolve his coaching approach between 10 years ago when you were a bit more in the, the command structure for, for young players to now when, in his words, you have to explain and encourage rather than tell. Is that something you find that you know, is an evolution to your coaching that you've had to make? I I understand exactly what you're saying, I, and I think coaches uh, in in current circumstances are faced with a number of different uh, things to consider. Um, I was lucky again um, at the time. England basketball spent, I think, did a reasonable job at investing in some of their national team coaches. I had the opportunity to do some work uh, and some course development with uh, that uh, with David Whitaker, who head coached the GB hockey team when they won in Seoul. Uh, David Henry, the, the gold, obviously the the, uh, the athlete. A guy called Dave Collins, who used to be the performance director of, uh, of UK athletics, etc. Uh, 
John Collins and I actually attended a, a course that they ran about a question of style, which was a bit out there at the time where you are questioning, you are trying to get players to buy into what you're trying to do. But fundamentally, even David, as David Whitaker said at the time, at the end of the year, you'll go through that process. The process is slightly different, but at the end of the day, you've got to get an athlete to commit to what's the, the way to get better, the way to succeed. You have to get the athlete to buy into that. Well, in, in, in the past, you might have been able to tell them in, a, in, a, in particular ways. And, uh, and now you're in a situation where you're going to go through a process. But there comes a point where you say, OK, that's what we've agreed to do. And then you can still be as you know, demanding. You might, not, you might have to use different language. You may have to do it in a slightly different way, but you still have to make the same demands and set the same uh, rigor to, to what people are trying to, to achieve. Um, and so I, I think it's, uh, the processes are slightly different. In many ways, you've got more opportunities, more di different things you can use. But at the end of the day, you have to still be as rigorous and challenging uh, it's just maybe how you uh, how you have that rigor and how you challenge. Um, but I'm not going to yeah, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that at some point you have to say to someone, "This is we've agreed, you've agreed that that's what you're going to do. We've agreed that's what you're going to. You're not doing it." And then how we react to that is one of the key parts of getting better. I mean, your current role is is pr primarily running the Barking Abbey Academy, and you know, it's 15 years. It's been going now. Pretty good effort. It was one of that first wave of academies. I don't think there was ever really a second wave, but the first wave came along. Let's go to the genesis of it. How did that actually come about that it was established? Was it a, a top process to get Barking Abbey School to, to set it up, or where did it come from? I think it's uh, one of the easiest things I've ever done, largely <laughs> because the um, head teacher and the director of sport, a guy called Phil Ryder, as the director of sport, uh, was involved in football and the various levels uh, he's at, he had the he'd had a, a career as a teacher that had also given him the chance to coach some of the representative football teams so he'd, he'd been through periods of times where John Terry and people like that had gone across his across his watch if you want and on some of the representative teams and he as a director of sport took being a sports college much more seriously I think than, than, than many sports colleges did and, and wanted to give kids with talent the opportunity to succeed Basketball lends itself to an academic environment so well because of the college routes. And um, uh, it's where Claire taught uh, and was, Claire was based. And uh, he asked me if I knew anybody that would want to uh, set up a basketball program. I don't think they realized what they were asking when they, when they said it in terms of how far I might want to take it. But uh, I'd worked in local government for a number of years and this was an opportunity that was just too good to miss. So I said I would really be keen in doing it. And uh, the head teacher was ridiculously supportive. Uh, uh, Mark Lloyd is the, the head teacher, not the Mark, but not the basketball Mark Lloyd, but uh, another Mark Lloyd, uh, really got the fact that this was about offering kids an opportunity, which is what schools should be doing anyway. Um, in fact, he, he had, we, Mark got involved with um, UK sport in terms of trying to work out was, uh, were sort of schools an opportunity to put structure in place and set elite academies up like Embarking. So Chelsea War, who's the current director at UK Sport, was the director of development, came down, spent some time with us. And basically we'd set up a system that was as close to a specialist sports college that, that she'd seen in the UK. So in the, And then we helped a number of other schools uh, set up the model. And I'm as proud of the fact that there are 
places like uh, the, the work that Charm would do, the work that Myers Co. do. Uh, a lot of these places we've, and the great work they're doing down in Kola in, 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 in South London. Uh, and we've helped all those people set up just by you know giving them the model and trying to help them set up because we need a number of those places to try and give kids the chance to be on the floor. Because the major driver was when we were choosing, when Dan had the opportunity to go to, to Estudiantes when he was 14, it's like we looked around in the UK and there was just no way we could compete with the basketball opportunity that he was being offered. So we we spent some time looking at the programs in um, the Sabona School in Lithuania. We went to Serbia. We went and looked at the situations in Spain and we've just tried to replicate that. And I think it's it would always it was always going to take a while. But if you see the forget the A division success that some of the boys teams have had as a guide, but the level of young player coming through because of the academy system is so much, uh, so much better as a base level. Uh, and we just then the next stage would be to give those British players as many pro opportunities as possible. I mean, you've got great people that, you know, that have been in and around the programme, James Veer, Karen Burton, the incomparable Duncan Ogilvy. You know, for, for, for those who don't quite understand it, you're a 15 year old, 16 year old, pitching up at Barking Up. What, what do you get there? Give us a flavour of what, what a typical day week is for, for a student athlete there. Over the, over the, the course of a week where if you're doing you know, your three A levels, you can get 15 hours of, of education time. So that gives us another 10 hours. So obviously there's, there's uh, during the school day that is, that they've obviously got to do study, etc. But we give them uh, four to five hours during the school day of, of individual-based fundamental work that goes on during the school day so we timetable it almost like a lesson someone like Duncan Ogilvy gives them a, a strength and conditioning program that for the, the for the high performing athletes that we have gets very individualized and then uh, from three between three and six in the afternoon we'll, we'll team practice so overall we're getting up to uh, 15 or so basketball hours and then we've got games midweek with the academy league but also we play in the senior men's and women's levels of competitions at the weekend so that's comparable the, what we tried to do was come up with a system that was comparable to a studiantes that was comparable to uh the sabonis school and in fact in many ways when louis uh when school came louis school came to it and worked and helped and um, based himself at barking for pretty much two seasons they don't have that scenario in Spain. Their, their team practices are team practices after school. They're not. They're not. They're not got the opportunity to integrate uh, the scenario that that, that we have. Um, so you know, that, it's a, it's a great endorsement, I suppose, when you look at someone who's an assistant coach on a World Cup winning team and a, an age group national team coach that's won medals for Spain, almost endorsing the product. Uh, so we feel comfortable with the structure, and it gives the kids as many hours as a European kid has. And that's a comparable look now to, to some of the other academies across across the country. So the kids don't have an excuse that they don't get the hour basketball hours if they're prepared to make the, the, the move to, uh, to to Barkin. We've had kids from, we've had some great kids, uh, Sean Nealon from, from Scotland. We've had some great kids from Ireland. We've even had some kids uh, from Bulgaria, uh, from the, the from Hungary, that have also made that that choice to come, and largely that largely that choice is around trying to go to college in the states. But and the other thing you get when you come to an academy is that advice about what's the best option for you as a career development opportunity, whether it be into college in the states, college in this country, or or even pro. So, 
I mean, Bokambi was supposed to be the first of a network. And, you know, in some shape or form, we've maybe got three, four, five of similar academies around the country. But it's not really been the, the kind of target or a strategy anymore to have that. Do you think for this, to these to be the drivers of the sport, we've seen the players that have come through your academy, that there needs to be a way found to A, to have more of these things, B, that they're integrated very you know, efficiently into a national structure, but see that they need to be part of a professional club. I think that that, that if you look at the successful countries when it comes to, to junior development and, and senior national teams, they've got to become part of the professional structure and professional clubs. Um, in the hope that the professional club sees that as an investment in the future. So, um, I mean, we're trying to become much more aligned with Lions. Leicester obviously have their alignment straight away uh, there. But even, I know lots of people are going to give me a hard time for this because I, I say it too often. Even if you look at close to home and you look at successful other sports, it's club-based. Every The elite side of the sport is largely club-based. You look at netball now, and I know that's where I'm going to get a hard time. Netball now, after having, you know, has developed their, their professional league to a very good level. Um, there isn't a, there's no need to compare netball and basketball uh, because netball's only played in certain parts of the world. It's not as competitive at an international level, etc. It's a great game and a great, a great level, but you, there's no point in comparing the two sports uh, that way. But all their elite junior development that goes through their Super League clubs because that's where the coaches want to coach. That's the structure that gives the player the opportunity to progress from a junior into a senior. And I don't think we need to reinvent a, a, a structure where, when you've already got a club structure where players, you would hope, would want to aspire from being a junior all the way through to playing at a senior level. It takes you right back to your Crystal Palace, your, your Kingston your Manchester, your Birmingham Bullets type days where their junior programs were the best junior programs in, in the country because kids wanted to play on those professional teams, which is exactly what is happening in Spain. It's exactly what happens in France. And even France with their INSEP is coming away slightly from a centralized system and the players are playing within a club structure. And then they have a club structure that supports the best players playing before the men's pro games. And it's... Because Barking Abbey, in, in many ways, is a problem for, for, for Division One in the English League because we don't have fans, we don't promote games, we're about developing players. That's not really what Division One should be about. Division One should be like Hemel, who do a great job developing the game, but also promotion and have seven, eight, nine hundred people watching their games every week, and we rock up with no fans and they come down to Barking, <laughs> and there's no and, and it's not our our aspirations are different than. People like Hemel. Hemel's aspirations will be to be a pro club. Our aspirations should be develop pros that maybe play at London Lions. That that's the way. That's the difference. Those two things are not compatible if you're trying to promote a Division One. Can you see not a way though to make those two things come together? Because you might say that there is. I suppose it's a bit like the G League in the states. That you know, I speak to people there. Yeah, you know, I'm slightly surprised sometimes they don't get more fans coming because it's a great level of basketball and up till recently they've been playing in different cities where there's probably not other professional teams or maybe minor league teams in some respects but do you not see a way that you guys as, as you edge tentatively closer to London Lions that there isn't that opportunity to promote yourselves a bit more 
Yeah, yeah. But it's the same. It's the same debate, isn't it? It's it's like the purpose of Barking Abbey. Uh, we could, and for a period of time, maybe we were looking to, because um, we've had relationships with uh, London Leopards. We've had relationships with Kent Crusaders. Um, maybe we, we were looking then to perhaps um, promote Barking Abbey as a Division One basketball team. Uh, on the boys' side, uh, on the girls' side, yeah, we were playing WBBL. We were making national trophy finals and, and, and things like that. Um, but you need people to uh, promote and, and run promotions, and uh, that's that, our our resources are all are all targeted at developing players, developing coaches, and I think that. London Lions is a professional basketball club that needs to sell tickets and wants to sell tickets and wants to be playing at the highest levels. Do we need London? Do we need Barking Abbey trying to sort of operate outside of uh, that structure, or should they operate within in, inside that structure? If you go to if you go to Madrid, there's no one trying to grow a program that tries to take the best players away from the best structure because they want the best players developed in the best way and playing professionally, and that attracts fans to watch local players and, and Spanish players in that instance play. So even though Estudiantes have struggled uh, level-wise for the last few years, they're still the most, they've still got more home fans than anybody else because people relate to it. I think that's all part of the picture. I think it's part of the basketball picture in this country where people um should really be focused on what their role within within the overall sport is and do that as well as they can without possibly trying to do things that other people are in a better place to do and i think that's from federation down to clubs i i just think everyone's this goes back to that point we started right at the beginning about uh, pointing everybody in the right direction and everybody making their contribution to that direction if i think if we started to try and make barking abbey a club um in the same way that would divert us from what we're good at What's what's the, I guess the the strategy like though for, the BA London Lions? So you were, coached there, as head coach for four years if you include the previous badge mm. under under Barking Abbey. It's not a team that's, in the last few years has generated a lot of wins, but strategically obviously for development it's very important. I mean, mm. is there, is that a club that's that that hybrid model? in some way can can work in that you're, you're trying to develop prof- a professional product but it's also a, a a means for you to bring three players and w- where does that club make its next step if the wbbl as we all hope is also to make that next step well the next step for us is to be uh be london lions i mean it's uh, the women's team that they're in that we're, we're close to agreeing that uh you know, it's basically going to be London Lions, uh, but still with the the links into into Barking and Barking has a division. We have a Division One team that plays in the Division One league for in in for in BE's Division One league, and and I think we'd be moving to a, a scenario where the London Lions is trying to win the WBBL, but it's also trying to use the best young players from Barking to not just sit on the bench. That's pointless. Uh, but the best young players from Barking to enhance their chances to win. So uh, if if the things we're talking about come to fruition, then I, I would expect us to be competing for, 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 for league championships 
as early as this coming season, perhaps. But um, I still think that fits the model and barking as an academy. And it moves into what is called a club-based academy model that, that Basketball England is, uh, has as part of their elite development pathway. I think that model gives more kids the opportunity to access those, those elite programs and therefore is going to be better. And that would enhance, enhance the, the, the players coming through. So look out for BA London Lions to be signing former WNBA players with American uh, cash this season. Is that what you're saying? I don't know if we're at that level. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we're at that level. Uh, but I do know that um, that we are. We are. We will, we will have a very, very competitive team. And uh, the players that we'll bring in will be able to make the academy players better. And uh, will be better than we've ever been before in the WBBL. So, and, and I, but I won't, I won't, if I'm still involved in that, which I expect, fully expect to be with, I won't sacrifice the fact that British players have to be an important part of that, have to be a leading part of that. Talking of British players, we'll finish up on this topic. I mean, you always expect people to bring this up first, but you know, you've, you've, you're also known as dad of, husband of, husband of, husband of Claire, dad of, of Dan and Ella. Um, oh, as a parent, I mean, you, Obviously, we've seen their achievements you know, as, as Great Britain internationals. But as a parent, you know, Dan had that choice when he was in his teens that you know whether he went to college, whether he stayed here, as you said, or whether he took up the offer to go to Estudiantes. I mean, Ella went to different went, went to Long Beach Beach State. And I recall a conversation you and I had. It must have it was probably the Eurobasket about that process of, of of choosing the right college for Ella, and obviously choosing the right right spot for Dan back in the day. I mean, what advice do you give to parents? I'm sure you're asked this. When they're trying to guide their kids to that next step, it might not be that the level that those two went to, but how do you how do you now sit back and you know thinking back on it and the learnings you took from it on both different routes? But how do you how do you help your kids get the best opportunity for them? Uh, I think the most important thing is as much as possible, try and take some objective advice. There are so many people out there who will give you very subjective advice that largely benefits them. Um, so if people you can trust take, take advice um, and try not to look short term because I think Dan's the best example, I, I think, and Ella to, 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 to some extent as well. Um, if we'd have looked short term, Purely short term. Dan would have been at Real Madrid playing junior basketball, I think, if we'd have looked short term, because they offered us lots of money and things like that. Um, but if you look at Real Madrid's um, ACB roster and their EuroLeague roster, try and identify a player that's come through Real Madrid's junior program. They don't need that. They have a junior program that, and that they'll find Sergio you and uh, who else? It's one of those. It's like, you know, they, they, they find they find Luka Doncic and he comes and he's in he's a young player at Real Madrid. They play him straight away. That's fine. But like, how many Luka Doncic's are there? You know, there's not many. Um, and the advice we've given a number of people in, in, who've been offered the same type of scenario is like the value that whatever they're offering you now, if if they if your play, if your son or daughter is going to be at that level. That amount of money is is not worth taking when you might be like taking uh, not taking a long term view. So we went to a studio because their reputation was developing players that went on 
to be successful with them. Felipe Reyes, uh, Sergio Rodriguez, Carlos Suarez at the time. And they were successful with Estudiantes, but they went on and were great players in big programs. I mean, Felipe Reyes is a, is a legend in Spanish basketball. Sergio Rodriguez is one of the best guards they've ever produced, etc., etc. Jaime Fernandez is the latest, one of the later sort of examples of that. So when people start sending you faxes to say we'll match any financial offer, you can't have your head turned if you want by, um, by money because the money is relatively small. Even though for some people at that point in time, that money might be quite attractive. It's, it's, you, you must take a long-term view. And I took that across into Ella's choice, and it was Ella's choice to go to Long Beach because if it had been my choice, she'd have gone to St. Joe's. Um, one, because I, the, the coaching staff there I, I, I knew well and as a university of a basketball tradition and the camp, all those things. And I think Claire would, would, would say the same. But I think Ella had her head turned by the Pacific Ocean and the beach, but also more importantly, her head was turned by the fact that the coaching staff there created exactly the right uh, impression of her and promised to do things to her, which, which many people get those promises, but they fulfilled that. They didn't just throw her to the inside. They allowed her to be develop as a, as a perimeter-based player who could post up. And again, took a long-term view. And I think that's it's a very hard thing to do at the time, but you need to take that uh, long-term view and get some advice. And, and, and more on the men's side. Unfortunately, it's just a fact of life. The commercial side, please speak to people who know what they're talking about. Because someone's asking us when Dan's 14, what's he worth? How, how on earth can you put a value on your child at that point? And so you need professional advice as to how to protect uh, and again, there are there are good agents and there are bad agents. We were fortunate at the time. We just where could you go in this country at the time? We ended up talking to football guys. We were lucky to talk to a football guy that was really helpful in terms of how to protect Dan. And then we've been very lucky. Dan's still with the same agent he was with when he was like 16 years old. So um, you, you've got to find you've got to try and research the people that are going to advise you, because there are lots of people who will offer you the, the advice that's the best advice they believe. Um, not always in the interests of your son or daughter. Um, so I think it's it's try to get the take the long term view and get the best advice you can. And that's from someone like me and Claire. We were heavily involved in basketball. You know, we you know coach I coached national team and Claire had played national team. But what did we know about the commercial side of the sport? Very little. So uh, that was uh, and I've carried on trying to develop that because I want to try and advise people embarking about those types of options. So uh, get the right people involved and don't try. I think we would, we, one thing we definitely didn't do was tell either of them what to do. Um, and in Dan's case, that was difficult because he was only 14 years old. But you've, you've got to try and get him to be comfortable with the decision. And in Ella's case, she made the decision to go to Long Beach. How do we, I guess, take that cultural shift? Now, last year's last of all, but there's always been such a, a tradition of, I'm turning 17, turning 18, I want to make the next step, I'm going to go to America, I'm going to do college. That's 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 almost the norm as it's been. And gently, people have been trying to you know, urge kids to you know look at mainland Europe, look at your Spains and, and France's, etc. And obviously, we know it's a tough sell culturally in this country. We're very lazy, we like to go places where they speak English. It's all very simple, but you know, how do we create more of those door openings for kids to to go to mainland europe and also maybe persuade them that that college route 
doesn't necessarily have to be the best route for them. Mm. It's especially difficult now because the the financial side in mainland Europe is like everywhere else. It's not as uh, not as was. There's not as much money. There's not as many options, um, and people are being asked to pay far too much money to go to some places in Europe. But um, how do we create that? I think it's it's an education process for the people that are advising those young players. Um, you know, it's like the, I don't know the best way maybe to describe this, uh, and 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 I'm gonna very sort of summarize there was much more discussion than this but when joel freeland went to grand canaria jimmy guyman is great great coach great developer of players etc and the conversation jimmy's expected route for joel would have been to go to college in the states and um then this option you know joel goes to europeans this option to go to grand canaria was on the table which for that group of people around Joel at that time was, was probably the first time they thought about that option. So it's the same thing I said before. How do we create that, uh, open that sort of opportunity up? Don't they, we spoke to, to, to Joel's father and, uh, and, and obviously because we know Jimmy, you're speaking to Jimmy and you just make them aware of the opportunity, but not the opportunity that people are trying to sell, but the real opportunity. So for Joel, it was like, that opportunity could give Joel the chance to be a pro basketball player. Was it going to be better than going to college in the States? In Joel's case, they decided it was, and it turned out it couldn't have turned out any better for him, and largely down to how hard Joel works. But the support and the grounding he got and the advice he got from Jimmy, you can't put a value on that. And so it's it's because Joel would have trusted Jimmy. And how many players would have trusted Jimmy Rogers? How many players they're, they're all those are the those are the people that you need to listen to. So those are the people that need to be aware of all those opportunities because it's easy to say, I'm going to send my kid to the college in the States. It's easy because who's going to say it's a bad option and you sell them an American dream, but maybe they don't know about the opportunity that is there. If you want to send someone to Serbia who, you know, those options exist to go to, to partisan or somewhere like that, or to go to Lithuania. Uh, etc. Unless you're involved, so I think the get, getting federation has to take some responsibility for this, and I still don't think it does it very well. Advising the elite player what their options are has there has to be a role with the federation to do that. Uh, they don't necessarily do that as well as they should um, or they could, and uh, I think that it's about educating the people that advise and influence players that to get those players a more rounded view of what options are available. It's not a bad option to go to college in the States, even though the, there are some people who would say it is. It's got to be the right option for that person, though. And you can't talk about going to the States either. People talk about going to the States. It's like if you're if someone tells me that California is like New York, they're two different countries when it comes to culture. <laughs> uh, and if you want to go and sit in the, in the Midwest, it's a completely different place. If you have to travel two hours to get between two towns, you know, kids in london aren't used to that so all those things education of player people advising is is as important as anything else mark it's been a fantastically varied journey as it always is chatting to you continued success with building up the hotspot that is barking abbey and thank you for joining us on the mvp cast thanks mark enjoyed it
That's it for this edition, brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Give them a little follow on social media at T Compliance Limited. You can catch all the previous editions at mvp247.com or set your podcast provider to download automatically. If you want to get in touch, reach out to me on Twitter at Mark Brickle, as always. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very, very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now. <laughs>